You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? She's pretty pumped up this morning, isn't she? She did not do that when she lost an hour of sleep. I am almost positive that she was on full rest when she made that video. Anybody tired this morning? Anybody tired? Yeah, yeah. Whoever created daylight savings time is possessed by the devil. Until about 7 o'clock tonight when it's still light out, then I'm going to say they've been delivered, right? You know, so if you're a little tired this morning and you, and you, you need a little uh, pick-me-up, hopefully we'll keep you awake. But do want to welcome everybody that's here this morning in person. want to welcome everybody who's joining us uh, online. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Lance, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And this morning, what we want to do is we want to continue the series that Pastor Nick started last week entitled, The Chosen. And I really loved the imagery that he used um, when he was ending the message last week because the kingdom of God, isn't it really like a whole host of imperfect people gathering around a table? Like broken people breaking bread together is really, I think, a good idea of what the church really looks like. I mean, none of us are better than the other. None of us are worse in God's eyes than the other. None of us are certainly perfect in any way, but we're all invited by the amazing love and grace of God. And last week, Nick dived into Matthew, the tax collector, who was one of the least likely people in Jesus' time to be accepted because he was literally working against the people of Israel to bring tyranny to them. So he was an outcast of outcasts. Well, this morning, we want to dive into the life of Thomas for just a few minutes. But before we do, you know I like questions. If you've heard me speak before, I usually always start with a question. So here's my question. How many of you have a nickname? Anybody here with a nickname, like a moniker or a handle that you've had for the majority of your life? I'm not talking about Babe or Han or something like that, but like a nickname that you've had for a long time in your life. And sometimes we don't like to admit that, right, because we're kind of embarrassed of that nickname, you know, we don't want to tell the story, but I had two nicknames growing up. So my first name is Lance, which isn't really a super common name, and growing up, and I didn't know why at the time, to be really honest with you, they called me Lancelot Link, secret chimp. And I'll be honest, I thought it was super chimp at the time. I kind of thought, super chimp is better than secret chimp, right? So I was all for it, and I'll be honest with you, I really didn't even know what that meant until about five weeks ago when I started preparing for this sermon. I looked it up. I was like, where did they get that? Do you know that was a detective show with a monkey that was a detective? Anybody know that? It started in 1970, and I was born in 1971, so I'm dating myself this morning, but apparently something about me made them think I was a secret chimp. That one didn't stick. Um, My other nickname growing up was based off of my middle name, which I'm the youngest of nine kids, and I think they ran out of names at that point in time. So my middle name is Terrell. And my mom nicknamed me, I don't know why, Lance the Terrible. (laughs) 
It's a mystery. She's not still here for me to ask her about it. Uh, But somewhere along the line, that one didn't stick either. So apparently whatever made her first think that was overcome by angel wings or something over the course of time. Neither one of those nicknames for me stuck because, quite frankly, they didn't really define me. And isn't that what a nickname is? Isn't a nickname something that defines someone? It's a name other than their given name that is often synonymous with their personality, character trait, a physical trait. Nicknames, they describe us. They define us. Here, let's do a quick thing. Where is the steel city? This is a really difficult one. Where is the steel city? Wow, you guys are not sleeping. That is a good thing. Who is the boss? Ah, Jerome Bettis, right? And why is he the boss? Because he fell down in the middle of a pothole in the middle of Pittsburgh. No, he's the boss because nobody wanted to get hit by him. You never heard the expression, I feel like I've been hit by a bus? Well, no one wanted to be hit by Jerome Bettis because it felt like a bus. The nickname described him. It defined him. How do we identify the Pittsburgh Steelers defense? Steel curtain or Blitzberg, right? Nicknames. They describe or define us. We moved, we moved to Pittsburgh almost 20 years ago. Our oldest daughter, Alex, was five years old at the time, and she was just starting school. And uh, I remember it very vividly. It was track and field day up on Cougar Mountain. And if you don't know what Cougar Mountain is, it's part of the sprawling metropolis of York School District, okay? And we're there at track and field day, and we're standing near the end of the line, and they're doing these races. And what's crazy to me is every time they run, every time my daughter runs, she's winning. Like, whether it's a boy or a girl, she's winning. And I just never knew, and I was never more proud than that moment, but I just never knew that the speed was there. And the reason I didn't know the speed was there is you should have seen her legs, Like, they were tiny legs. They were long, but they were really skinny. Like, really skinny. I still remember one of the days, Saturday morning, we were playing soccer, and one of the guys just looked as she was going down the field and said, man, she looks like a deer. She looks like a gazelle. Well, through elementary school and middle school soccer and high school soccer, she acquired a nickname, Sticks. Because it looked like she was running on sticks. I'll tell you, it was awesome sitting in the crowd at college soccer where she played and listening to all the parents, uh, not me, the other parents, go sticks! It described her. It defined her. You see, nicknames, they tell a story. And as we talk about Thomas this morning, how many know he had a nickname? And most people, when we think of him or we mention of him, we describe him almost every single time in a certain way. 
And we're going to dive into that defining moment of his life in John chapter 20 this morning. But before we do, I need to give you a little bit of context of what's going on, okay? John chapter 19, we see vivid images of the death of Jesus. His lifeless body is taken down from the cross and he's prepared for burial. He's then taken and he's laid in the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who bought a tomb. So in John 19, Jesus is dead and he's buried. And the ones he had chosen, who over the course of the last three years had just walked almost everywhere with him and had talked with him over and over, so much investment from Jesus into their lives. I mean, these guys had a front row seat to the supernatural. But now they're scattered. They're discouraged. They're dejected. They're defeated. They're stricken with grief. They're mourning. And three days later, on a Sunday morning, a female disciple named Mary Magdalene, according to John chapter 20, goes to the tomb. And as she arrives, she experiences something very, very unexpected. The stone, this big, heavy stone, is rolled away. Well, she makes a beeline, running, If I was in the crowd, I'd be like, go sticks, right? You know, get there. She runs and she finds Peter and John and she says this. She looks at the empty tomb, the rolled away. They've stolen his body. This is her report. So Peter and John, they get up. They start running. They get to the tomb. They look inside. And you know what they see? Empty linens just lying around in an empty tomb. And they investigate for a short period of time, but then the Bible says they leave. But Mary remains. She's outside the tomb of Jesus, stone rolled away, linen cloth inside, and she's crying, the Bible says. And through those tears, she decides to take a second look into the tomb And she sees two angels. And if you've been crying this long, I imagine she does one of these, right? And I don't want to rip my contacts out this morning, but I imagine she does a double take because, I mean, I don't know how often you've seen angels, but she looks in again and she sees one sitting where Jesus' head was, one sitting where his feet were. And then she's like, and then they talk. And they ask a question. Why are you crying? And she says to them, they have taken my Lord away. Well, as all of this is transpiring, Mary looking in the tomb, two angels, the angels are talking to her. All of a sudden, she sees a gardener going by. And then she has a question of her own. She looks at the gardener and says, did you carry his body away? You see, there's an empty tomb. There's a lot of questions, but so far, no real answers. Well, if you've read John 20 before, you know the gardener was who? It was God, right? It was Jesus. It was Jesus in the flesh, resurrected, looking like he's ready to go to work, if you will. Calls her by name, Mary. And in her excitement, in her enthusiasm, in him calling her by name, she reaches out to embrace him, to hug him. 
He's like, no, 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 I've not yet glorified. He's untouchable, if you will, at the moment. But go and tell my disciples, I'm alive. So there's the context. That's what's going on. Let's pick it up in John chapter 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. So she goes, she finds the disciples. uh, She tells them that Jesus is alive. She gives the message of what's coming next. And what's so crazy about this, if you read in in the very next verse, we don't get any reaction. Like if she comes and tells you that Jesus is alive, you think we get a reaction. But the Bible doesn't give us a reaction. We're left hanging. Did they believe her? Did they doubt? Did they think, man, that Mary, she's a crazy lady. She just cried herself into hysteria, into hallucination. Now she's seeing things and she's telling stories. I think we get an inferred answer actually in the next verse, verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting. So it's the same day, right? Not a day has passed, same day. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're hiding. They're scared. They're afraid. They're probably saying to themselves, we don't know exactly what happened. I mean, we know he said some stuff that he was going to do. We haven't seen it yet. We don't know what's happening. We know that they said that they were going to come steal his body. Well, like, we're going to get blamed. And there's just fear. The end of verse 19, suddenly, got to love that word in the Bible, right? Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And I'm sure Jesus is speaking to their fear because he knows they're fearful. But again, if somebody just drops down into the middle of your room, I'm hoping the first words will be peace, right? You know, because we got some supernatural activity going on here, right? Jesus drops into the middle of the room somehow and he says, peace be with you. And an amazing scene unfolds. Verse 20, as he spoke, He showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. They were filled with joy. They were overcome with excitement. And I don't think that it was just that they saw him. Like, I don't think this joy that they were feeling is just because they saw him. I think it's how they saw him. Ever have a paper cut before? Splinter. Open wound. What does that look like three days later? More importantly, what does that feel like three days later? I have a paper cut right here. I promise you I got it on Monday. It is massive, isn't it? I mean, I'm surprised, I'm a man, I'm surprised I'm even being in church this morning with this paper cut. I mean, it's, and all the women said, what? Amen, right, 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 right. I got a paper cut right here, and I remember yesterday I was doing some stuff around the house, and I was like, that hurts, and it was five days later, look at that, isn't that massive? 
And here is Jesus three days later. It's not just that they saw him alive, it's how they saw him alive. This was not a resuscitation, this was a resurrection. He was healed, he was whole, he was holy, he was alive. I mean, how good is God? He wasn't battered and bloodied and bandaged. He wasn't how they expected he would be. He was alive. And there's joy. And there's excitement. But not everybody's excited. Verse 24. And one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, now stay with me, Thomas, nicknamed the what? What? The twin? Thomas's nickname's the twin? Like if I asked you 15 minutes ago what Thomas's nickname was, what would you have said? Doubting, right? We wouldn't have said twin. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. You see, numerous times in the Gospel of John, he's called Thomas Didymus. If you look into the Greek, the word Didymus itself means twin. That his nickname was twin. It wasn't doubting. It was twin. Verse 25. They told him, we have seen the Lord, but he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Listen, in Thomas's mind, what he saw was greater than what they saw. In Thomas's mind, what he saw was greater than what they, listen, his last memory of Jesus was different than their last memory of different. They were looking at two different pictures. His last picture of Jesus was that he died, and he didn't just die, he was pulverized, he was crucified, he was whipped and beaten, crowns put on his head. He was gone through the, he went through the most unbelievable suffering. His last image, his last memory of Jesus was different. And what he saw in his mind, there's no coming back from that. So what did he say? Unless I see it. Unless I see something different than the last thing I saw, I won't believe. And honestly, who could blame him? Do you blame him? I mean, that's a pretty outrageous thing to see, right? Someone is crucified and pulverized and put in a grave three days later to have almost no effects of that. Who could blame him? So, what gives? What gives? What nickname sticks? Is it Thomas the twin? Or is it doubting Thomas? See, Thomas got this nickname 
that has stuck with him for centuries. But the truth is, is it was only a snapshot of his life. He was branded off of one experience. But there was so much more to Thomas uh, than doubt. If you go into John chapter 14, Jesus again is telling his disciples that he's going to go away. He's going to prepare a place for them. And again, they're filled with fear. And then Thomas uh, steps up out of all disciples and says, where are you going and how can we know the way? So in this instance, he's not doubting Thomas, is he? He's questioning Thomas. In John chapter 11, the death of Lazarus and his own resurrection. In this passage, it's even crazier. It's not the death of Lazarus that's going on. As a matter of fact, there is a lot of death threats being happening in John chapter 11. It's a very tense scene. Listen to this, John chapter 11, verse 7. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. Where Lazarus was, they were almost stoned not that long ago. Then Thomas, nicknamed Didymus, nicknamed twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, the twin, people want to kill Jesus? Let's go. That's basically what it says. They want to kill you, Jesus. Hey, we're going for that ride. We want to be there. So here's my question. Why not questioning Thomas? Why not dangerous Thomas? Why not death wish Thomas, right? Like, Why? Why, why doubting Thomas? I mean, I realize those other ones don't have quite the same ring as doubting Thomas does. But here's the reality. Did Thomas have a moment of doubt? Did he even probably have a week of doubt? Yes. But here's the thing. Doubter didn't define him. He had a moment, he had a week, but doubter didn't define him. It's what we call him, it's what history has taught us to call him. But listen, the the men and women that knew him best, they didn't call him Doubting Thomas. They called him the twin. He was still the twin in their mind. He wasn't Doubting Thomas. That's what we say, but not what they said because they knew Thomas and doubter didn't define him. John chapter 20, verse 28, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. Man, I bet that was a long eight days, don't you? I mean, that's a long eight days. I mean, if you've had a long week at work, this is a long eight days. Uh, He struggled, I can only imagine. And the reason I can imagine is because I know what I would do. He struggled uh, with the ups and downs of this week of doubt. My guess is he's kicking himself because he wasn't there eight days ago. Was he sitting by himself at the end of the table? Was he asking the disciples questions? Uh, What did he say again? What did he look like? Did he say if he's going to visit again? Imagine. 
what that week was like. I don't know why he missed the first encounter, but my guess is he wasn't absent after that moment. Verse 26, the doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Jesus shows up eight days later. Thomas shows up. They're both there. Jesus shows up. Thomas shows up, now Jesus shows off. And he offered Thomas, listen, he offered Thomas immediately exactly what he said he needed to believe. Do you understand that? It's not like Jesus sat back in the corner to wait and see. From the way we understand, Jesus gave Thomas in that moment exactly what he needed to believe You want to touch me? You want to know that I'm alive, that I'm real? Listen, Jesus made himself vulnerable. He made himself accessible. He made himself tangible. He said, go ahead, Thomas, dig in. Get the proof you need to have the faith to know that what I'm doing is real. And it's amazing to me because eight days earlier when Mary tried to touch Jesus, if you read it, what did Jesus say? No, not yet. But when Thomas needed to believe what did Jesus say go ahead reach out touch me it's okay now he made himself vulnerable and then he spoke these words verse 26 don't be faithless any longer believe and in verse 28 the whole experience in front of him Thomas says my Lord and my God He has his moment where doubt is defeated and faith comes alive. You know, in my life, I've had two significant battles with doubt. I've had many moments of doubt, but I have had a few significant battles where doubt was just such a real struggle for me to the point of rocking my faith. The first one was when I was in my mid-20s. And it was an intellectual struggle. You see, I came up in a family that wasn't really a Christian family that much. There was a lot of chaos stuff, and I've shared that a year or two ago with you all. But it was a struggle, and I became a Christian at uh, the age of 11. It was February 21st, 1983 when I gave my life to Christ and it was a very emotional thing and it, it carried me. But I got into my 20s and I began asking myself after four years of Bible college, being a youth pastor, all these things, I began to ask myself, is this really real? Like, I don't know. And what happened in that season of doubt is I just really began to dig in. Like I dug in like crazy. I started reading everything that I could. I started praying in different ways than I had prayed before. And I was reading the case for Christ and the case for faith. And I even read books by atheists about the the Jesus puzzle. And I mean, I just dug into everything I could to say, I want to be able to know that what I'm basing my life on actually is based in something other than a leap of faith. But there's enough fact there. And after digging in and digging in and digging in, 
that really difficult season of my life, I was like, yes. I don't think there's another book on the planet like the Bible. And I don't think there's anybody else that's ever lived like Jesus. And that, that was a defining moment for me. The other one, that was in my mid-20s. The other one was in my mid-40s. And this wasn't an intellectual doubt. This was an emotional doubt. And I can say confidently now that I don't believe I, I ever lost my faith, but I can say that my confidence was shattered and that my trust in God was shaken. And I just kind of looked back at everything that was going on in my life and a lot of it centered around the death of people that I really cared about and how and why things happened and how they transpired and how they took place, how they did. And, and I just have to be honest, how I responded to the emotional doubt was a little different than I responded to the intellectual. I didn't really dig in on the emotional doubt. You know what I did? I drifted. I drifted on the emotional doubt. And, and just being very honest, prayer became difficult for me. And reading the Bible was not enjoyable for me. And worshiping became a burden. And the passion to serve really began to kind of just walk out of me. And I'll be honest, it's very difficult to be vulnerable. It's very difficult to be honest. But in the two times in my life where I really struggled with doubt, I can just tell you I handled them differently. One time I dug in and the other time I drifted. And I don't know about you, but when we face doubt, I think that's our big thing that's going to happen. Like when doubt comes to our life, one of those two things are going to be the way we go. We're either going to dig in or we're going to drift. Like when things begin to happen and our mind begins to say, is this even true? And maybe I'm alone here tonight. Maybe this is a, just a, you know, maybe, maybe you don't go through this. But I've had times when I've prayed and I've been like, what's the point? Like, why am I doing this? I've had unexpected events happen, and I'm like, does God even care? Does my life even matter? I've had times where I've looked at my own salvation, and I'd say, how can God even really love me or care for me or forgive me? And those are difficult moments. And when we face doubt, we are faced with a choice. The choice is, are you gonna dig in or are you gonna drift? Listen, Thomas was absent the first time, and I don't know why, and maybe someday I'll ask him. If I get to talk to him someday, that's gonna be my question. Where were you the first night, bro? You gave yourself a lot of heartache for nothing. I don't know. But you know what I know? He could have stayed away. Whatever kept him from there, being there the first night, guess what? He could have drifted farther in that direction. He could have said those next eight days, I missed the boat. I missed my chance. Uh, there's no opportunity. Jesus showed up for them, but he didn't show up for me. He's probably not going to show up again. He could have drifted. 
But you know what he did? He dug in. He didn't shy away. He didn't allow what was going on in his heart and his mind to control him. He made sure he was there. He dug in, and because he dug in, doubt didn't define him. He was still the twin to them. He wasn't doubting Thomas. And listen, guys, our doubts shouldn't define us. They should cause us to dig in deeper. They should cause us to latch on to God with everything that is within us because there is truth there. There is goodness there, even when we can't see it clearly. There is goodness there. There is faithfulness there. And I can tell you this, when you make the choice to dig in deeper, when you're struggling with doubt, it will deepen your faith. It will refine your faith. It will strengthen who you are and who you see yourself in God's eyes. And I don't know what you're going through this morning, but can I just can I just challenge you? Can I just encourage you? And maybe even in my own vulnerability, inspire you. Don't drift. Don't drift. Dig in. Dig in. And I know what you're probably thinking as we've read this and we've gone through this passage today. I wish Jesus would just do for me what he did for Thomas. I mean, it would be so great if he could just show up in the middle of my thing where it was tangible and I could touch and access him. Uh, Man, that would be so great. I wish he would just show up that way. Well, John 20 is not done. We didn't finish the chapter. Verse 29 says, then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That somehow, and we don't have time to get into this, but somehow there's a greater blessing in trusting God when we can't really touch God. And then it doesn't end there. There's another verse that says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may continue to what? Why is the Bible even here? Why is it given? What was the purpose? All these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have faith by the power of his name. Man, there's so many things he says that could be written, but we've written these at least so you'll have faith. Paul said to the church and the Christians and Romans, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Listen. Jesus doesn't just invite people who have unwavering faith. Jesus doesn't just invite people who have unwavering faith. Jesus chooses people who question. Jesus chooses people who struggle with doubt. That he still loves those that struggle in these areas. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're going through a season much like I have in my life where you're struggling with doubt. And even getting here this morning was a challenge. You're like, man, I lost an hour of sleep. I don't really feel like I'm getting what the, the ceiling just seems closed off. I mean, we can go through so many things. 
in our heart and our mind. And I'll just end the way I started with a question. Are you going to let doubt define you? Are you going to let doubt define you? Are you going to drift? Are you going to start pushing away from the things that you know draw you closer to God? Are you going to drift? Or are you going to dig in? God wants to speak to you. He wants to pour into your life. He wants to strengthen you in your struggle. He wants you to overcome. He wants to in his best way that he can. And the fact that he's not right here with us now in flesh and blood, he wants to in the best way he can. says, go ahead, touch me. Know me. Experience me. Are you going to let doubt define you? Let's stand together this morning. You know, one of the things about this whole COVID and pandemic thing that I've missed is being able to be prayed for or have someone lay their hand on me and pray. And we can't really do that this morning and we're not gonna do that in the way that we normally do. But what I'm gonna ask you is, listen, it's hard to be vulnerable. I did not enjoy being vulnerable this morning. But it's reality. And here's what I'm gonna ask you to do and we're gonna close this service in the next three or four minutes. But if you're struggling today with doubt, like you're just in a season of doubt. I'm just gonna ask you to do something vulnerable. I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand and say, that's me, that's what I'm going through. I'm really struggling right now with doubt. And the reason I want you to do that is because I want the people that are standing with you that came with you, I want them to be able to lay their hand on you and pray for you. But if you're alone, I want somebody to see you. And I want them to reach their hand without touching, but, but extend it in prayer. And I want them to pray for you. So why don't we do this if you're struggling today? Just take a step and say, that's where I'm at, Pastor Lance. I'm struggling with doubt. And just raise your hand and we're just gonna begin to pray. If you see somebody with their hand raised, we're gonna begin to pray for them. And if there's not a single hand raised in this room, we know we're full of liars. I've done this too long to know. Okay. So let's just be real. So if you need prayer and you're struggling with doubt, just raise your hand. We're going to pray. God, we thank you today. We thank you today that you are real and that you are tangible. That you can be known and you want to be known and you want to walk with us through our dark valleys and our difficult times. God, we have a choice this morning. The choice is we can let our doubt create mountains or we can let our faith move mountains. 
And God, you know every heart and every person. You see every hand raised. God, you know every struggle. And I just pray right now where we're at in this time, Lord, that these things would not define us, but that we would dig in and allow you to work in our lives. Lord, that we would begin to, as difficult as it might be, we would begin to raise a hallelujah that would be louder than our unbelief, God. That we would begin to trust you, even in shattered trust. That we would begin to let confidence be restored even where it's shaken this morning, God. God, you've chosen us. You knew our frailties. You knew our failures. You knew our shortcomings. You knew our struggles. And you chose us. So God, meet us here in this place. Begin to let faith rise in our hearts again where there are just so many broken and shattered things. God, we want to raise our hallelujah to you this morning because you are good. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 